This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book and is number three of the series dealing with the book of Judges. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, if you care to turn with us, we'll read together Numbers chapter 6. It is possible, and I think probable, that most of you who have started with us this subject this evening will realise why we have read together this chapter in the book of Numbers. It emphasises the Nazarite vow. And there are two things which are here which help us in our appreciation of the teaching of the book of Judges. First, you will notice in verse 12 that if this separation unto the Lord is broken, even by contact with a dead person and you are not personally responsible, it was so sacred, all that period was lost. I'll read the verse again, verse 12. And he shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of his separation, and shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering. But the days that were before shall be lost, because his separation was defiled. Now you know at the beginning, or right through this book of Judges, there's terrible types of people. The last of the judges, named Samson, was in himself a very weak man. Oh, you say, I thought he was strong. Well, yes, but he got properly tangled up, didn't he? Over and over again. But nevertheless, from the ceremonial point of view, he was a Nazarite. You remember how the, uh, was it Delilah, was wanting to know where in his great strength lay. What if he was a man like you see on the pictures with muscles sticking out, you know, like beer barrels, they wouldn't have had to ask him why he was strong. He had no visible evidence that he was a giant. His strength lay in the fact that he was a separated person. And then you see, when they cut his hair, they took away all the days of his separation. They were defiled and lost. And he was a weak man again. So you see, there are two things in this book of Judges uh, that link together with this Nazarite vow which we must now look at. First of all, I'll ask you to turn, and this is what I'm going to do briefly, I'm not going to do a lot of arithmetic, but um, in the Acts of the Apostles, the 13th chapter, Paul goes over the history of the people of Israel and gives a certain number of years. It says in Acts 13, verse 16, Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give up, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years, until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, the space of 40 years. Now you'll see there's a series of numbers there given you. 40 and 100, what is it, uh, uh, 450 and so on. Now if you will turn to the first book of Kings, and the sixth chapter, you'll find that there's another computation given there. 
And this has caused a good deal of trouble among those who are commentators on the scriptures. 1 King 6 And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt. So it starts at the same time, you see, as Acts 13, when they came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Well now, if we add 40 more years to the computation in Acts 13, in order to get Solomon's, in order to um, get the reign, there's Saul followed by David, which is not given. 40 years for David, and then three whole years, because it only just started the fourth year of Solomon, three whole years for Solomon, we bring the two dates up to the same line, you see. I'm rather tangled up with it, aren't I? But you can see what I'm getting at. We, we look at Paul's computation, and we look at this computation, and we find that they're 93 years out. And they both start from the same line. But Paul's computation leads you right on to the third year of Solomon and gives you 93 years more than you get here. So the conclusion is by many, or well, you mustn't trust in the book too much, what's that matter? But that's a bit awkward if all scripture is given by inspiration of God, isn't it? And this is what we discover. If we go to the book of Judges, we shall notice, as we of course do know, that every now and again there was a judge raised up, and while he lived, Israel were going on fairly reasonably, and then they rebelled against the Lord, and they became uh, under the domination of some outside rule. The first one that we meet is in um, Judges 3, verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Reshaphaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan, Reshaphaim, eight years. Well, you can go through the book of Judges, and you discover that they were sold a number of times, and the last one was to the Philistines, and if you'll add up the numbers, when the whole of Israel, not just a tribe or two, but when the whole of Israel were dominated by an outside power, you discover that it's exactly 93 years. Now you see, both, both statements are true. When Paul was going through the history, he simply gave the number of years that took place, like on a calendar. But when the book of Kings wrote it, it said the number of years is only those that God recognises, and some of them dropped out. And now there is a principle involved in this. First of all, in the book of Hosea, we have a child named Lo-Ami, not my people. And then the third chapter goes on to say that the children of Israel should abide many days without a king and without a prince and without an ephod and without teraphim and so on. And then afterwards they shall come back to the Lord. But for the time being, they're going to be segregated like this woman was in Hosea, the third chapter. So here's a principle. That we may suffer loss. And some of the years of our service may be just blotted out as not being worth reckoning. Israel were like that. And this begins to have an effect on the principle of interpretation in Daniel, the ninth chapter, where it says, 77s are marked off from all time, 
to bring in everlasting righteousness. But by the time you get to the coming of Christ, there's a gap of 2,000 years that are not written. Because in that 2,000 years, Israel, a low army, go out, not my people, like the 93 years of the book of Judges. I must leave that with you because if I have to go into it intimately, we shall not be able to get through our subject this evening. And many of you would have received the tapes already on the book of Daniel and you've anticipated what I was going to say. So we'll leave that for the time being. The loss of time, which is indicated in Judges, and then we remember that their failure was the lack of living up to the fact that they were supposed to be a holy people in a holy land, sent by a holy God to fulfill a holy promise. And they got themselves tangled up one way and another with the Canaanites, either living with them or taking tribute from them, as you remember. And then Samson, the last one, and the one who occupies the most of the book so far as the judge is concerned, he has twelve of his labours there which are set out. And he was a Nazarite. And you know how miserably he failed until the end and then he was given uh, uh, just a moment to have some uh, an act of judgment upon the Philistine. So there's a principle there that if this Nazarite vow, this holy position which God has given to any nation or people is in any measure defiled, there's a tre tremendous loss as you see here. And I think it's a lesson we do well to remember because although we cannot be lost, the same a book that says that says you may suffer loss. You may be on the one foundation and never be moved from it. But what you build may either be gold, silver, costly stones or it may be wood, hay and stubble and the day is going to declare it. So while we are sure of our hope, there's not one of us who can say we are sure of our prize. And some of these things we do well to have brought to our memory. Now we notice that there are six of these foes that were there and there were six deliverers raised up. And we'll look at the few of the outstanding features and then bring this first study of the book of Judges to a close. Now the first one, with the name I, 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 I managed to repeat myself, you know, in verse 8, this Kushan, whatever his name is, uh, but the translation of the man's name this king means a double evil. A double evil. And I suppose we can realise there are evils that come to us in pairs. There's the world and the flesh. And of course the devil is sometimes associated making a trinity. But we get this tangle up here in the history of this people with their false allegiance to those who were the evil seed. A double evil. And then we are told one thing about the next uh, one that comes before us in chapter 3, 17. Verse 17, And this Ehud, he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. Well, I don't quite know why all scripture which is given by inspiration of God should preserve to all time right through these thousands of years whether a man was fat or thin, do you? But don't you think it's there? Because this is another indication of the type of enemy that the church has to withstand. 
Don't you remember the affliction of the mind of that man Asaph? who was worried and perplexed because the wicked seemed to prosper and one of the things he noticed about them was their eyes stood out in fatness and they had more than heart could wish until he went into the sanctuary of God and understood the end. So here's the fat man dominating them. And believe me, the fat man of this world has dominated many, many times to the impoverishment of Christian faith. And will do so, I suppose, to the time of the end. And then we have in chapter 4, verse 2, verse 1 and 2, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. Jabin. I wonder what that word means. It means wisdom. And Hazor, what does that word mean? It means power. Wisdom and power. Do you mean to tell me it doesn't make you immediately think of 1 Corinthians that Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. He is the opposition. And now you know we've mentioned the word Sisera, what happened? This man fled and took refuge in the tent of a woman which was a wrong thing to do in those days, immediately anyhow. And then apparently, without any premeditation, this woman drives a tent peg through the temples of that man and he died immediately. Dreadful thing. But the tent peg, translated nail in our scripture, and referring to a stake, and they make you think of the cross of Christ. The wisdom of this world and the power of this world is up against the wisdom of God and the power of God. And it was a woman that drove the stake. And Genesis 3 says, The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. So many of these things which happened in those barbaric days are nevertheless preserved as types and shadows of a greater and more terrible conflict than even took place between these armies of Philistines or Amalekites or whatever they might be. And then you have in chapter 6 And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel and because the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou came unto Gazar and left no sustenance for Israel neither sheep nor ox nor ass. And this attitude of the Midianites has left its mark in the scriptures so much so that um, we read in the... Um, of prophet Isaiah, I think it is chapter 9, if you just turn for a moment to see that it's left its mark on prophecy. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 
Just notice the first verse. Nevertheless, the dimness should not be such as was in the vexation when, as the first, he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy of harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. So you see, it's left its mark, the same as we might remember 1066 as a mark to be remembered over certain teachers in our own history. And associated with Midian, coming back to chapter to chapter 6 of Judges, are the Amalekites. And the Amalekite is one that is spoken of in the scriptures as being at war with God, a perpetual war unto the time of the end. You might just get that, because that's another mark. The Exodus, book of Exodus, chapter 17, verse, verse 8 and verse 16. The people of Israel are on their way through the wilderness. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And verse 15, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. For he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And there's a great difference with regard to certain translations. The margin puts it, Because the hand of Amalek is against the throne of the Lord, therefore his hand was against the throne of the Lord and therefore there was this conflict throughout the ages never to be lifted. Well, anyone who is friendly, consorts or in any measure associates with one whose hand is against the throne of the Lord, whatever his purpose may be, whatever his motives may be, is simply asking for terrible trouble. You notice all the way through the failure to be separate people unto the Lord was the great mischief that followed and dogged this people's history. We come now to another uh, section, and that is the Ammonites, and then we have, at the end, the Philistines, where Samson comes into the story. So we've now got these uh, uh, opponents of the uh, people. I think the 8th chapter of um, Judges will give us the reference to the... Um, no, I think it, no, I think we must go further on. I'm sorry, the 11th chapter, just to get the tab on them. Uh, is it verse 5? And it was so, when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. That's where Jephthah comes into the story. But Ammon, you see. And the reason why I wanted to remember that was that he was another relative. Ammon was a descendant of Lot. Moab is a descendant of Lot. The Amalekites are descendants of Abraham. You see, that's the story. It's not merely the outside world that we've got to watch. 
we may be prepared for an attack of the ungodly, but it's the insidious element that creeps in. Somebody that you might trust and expect suddenly begins to show a different attitude. And then you have a tendency to say, oh, well, we mustn't be too hard on a brother in Christ, must we? And the evil goes on and the rot spreads. You see, sometimes we have to take that line. Can't help ourselves. Because it is required in steward, the very first thing is that a man be found faithful. And so we've got impressed upon us in this story of judges how they lost by departing from this one great essential rule. Well, now should we look at the deliverers? Back again, over the, we have to go over again just to see the way in which the Lord delivers this people. And there again we find peculiar things entering in. In chapter 3, verse 9, we have the deliverer named. Chapter 3, verse 9. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Cushan Rishathaim. And the land had rest forty years, and then this judge died. Now, Othniel means the Lion of God. And book of the Revelation opens with the seven-sealed book and John weeping because none in heaven or earth was found worthy to open the book. And he said, Weep not, for the Lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. He is the first one. And we're not told what weapon he used or what strategy he adopted he simply, his hand was strong enough because the hand of the Lord was with him. That is Othniel. Now, the next man who became, became a deliverer is mentioned in the same chapter, verse 12. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Moab is another descendant of Lot. He is another relative that's coming into the story and oppressing them. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. And then there was raised up a man named Ehud. This is in verse 15. And this man's name means union or unity. And it may be a word to you and to me. The moment you lose sight of the fact that you are one with Christ, the moment you begin to let down on the one thing that you have to remember before anything else in this calling, if you would walk worthy of your calling, said the Apostle, the first thing, not the last thing or the second thing, but the first thing is to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here's a man named Unity who's raised up because that was another evidence of failure. But you notice that God uses strange people I'm very glad of that because I believe sometimes he uses me. And some of you who are listening may be comforted by the fact. Here's a man, he's a tribe of Benjamin, but he's left-handed. And in the ordinary way, the right hand of the Lord is that which is the right side and the correct side and the strength there. But he can use a left-handed man. Or as he told the Corinthian church, with stammering lips and with other tongues, 
You see, he can do that. And so we have a great emphasis in this book of Judges of extraordinary, peculiar ways in which God can defeat the enemy. So here we have a left-handed man. We then go to the next chapter, 4 and 5, and we see uh, once more, and it says in verse 2, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, and the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. And the, the um, fact that this woman is associated with the um, The, the point I want to make is that in chapter 5, when the um, victory is being sort of remembered, we get these words. Um, just wait a minute, let me see it. Verse 24. Blessed above women shall jail the wife of Heba the Kenite be. Blessed shall be above women in the tent. So here's a prophetess, not saying it was a dastardly thing to do, but blessed be this woman. And you remember the words are really an echo in the New Testament where Mary, in, in the, the, uh, in the Luke, the first chapter, uses the words in connection with herself. Let's look at chapter, uh, Luke 1, 28. In the first case, the angel appears in 128, and the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favoured, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And then once more in verse 42, And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women. You see the words lifted out. So there's an anticipation here of the fact that the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. And then we come back again to the book of Judges and we notice the story of Gideon which occupies a good place. Now there are many things to do with this story which would take up too much of our time but um, two or three things I think we ought to notice. Chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them dens, which are mountains and caves and strongholds. Well then we find in chapter 6, 25, these words. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 6, 25. Yes. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father left, and cut down the grove that he is that is by it. And so he received another name, as you'll see in chapter 7, verse 1. Then Zerubbabel, who is Gideon, he was called the one who threw down the altar of Baal. Well, there's another attitude, you see. It was because of the worship of false gods that some of these dreadful things happened to this people. 
You will remember too, in the time of Pharaoh and the book of Exodus, God said, I will have judgment upon all the gods of Egypt. The Nile was a god of Egypt. And some of the animals that are mentioned in the plagues were gods in the estimation of Egypt. And so here again, there is an attack upon the false worship, both of Baal and the groves of Ashtoreth. Then you remember, in chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many. Well, now we are told in another part that the number of the Midianites was such as they, that they filled the land like grasshoppers. And instead of the Lord saying, well, you'll have to have a big army to meet them, he said, oh, no, you've got too many. That also is a spiritual truth, isn't it? It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. One stripling, who first of all was decked out in Saul's armour and looked a fool, I dare say, and then he said, oh, I can't go out with this, and he put it off him. He said, God has blessed me before with, a, with my sling and my stone as a shepherd. And he went out against the great Goliath and that sling and stone was all that was necessary in the hand of the Lord. And some of us look back and think of the very, very small beginnings of the work we do or that others have done. We have to say, well, it's just the same. The Lord said he doesn't delight in great armies and great numbers. He can work his purposes with few as many. I always think in this matter to comfort myself of that middle-age uh, legend uh, where when the Lord ascended and went to the right hand of the Father, the angel said to him, and what have you done? What have you left behind to keep the work going? Oh, he said, I've appointed twelve men. And I said, is that all, Lord? He said, yes. Well, that's a strange way of putting it, but that's fancy twelve men and some of them just fishermen. They're going to stand up against all the power of organised religion and organised military strength, Rome and Jerusalem. And they did it by the mercy of God because the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God. They're not carnal and we should remember that. So we have this emphasis here. There were too many. The Lord said unto Gideon, the people are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Why? Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me saying, mine own hand has saved me. Don't you see? So Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says that he has chosen the weak things, the things which are not, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And then the very man who was inspired by God to write that was inspired by God to say that he was also allowed to have a thorn in the flesh because of the many, many visions and revelations he received of the Lord, lest he also vaunt himself. So the Apostle Paul was open to the possibility of getting a swelled head because he had had such visions and revelations. It makes us realise how frail we are and how we need the grace of God. So we've got that to think about. And chapter 7, verse 7. And the Lord said, oh, in verse 6, the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped, will I save you. Now we mustn't make a distinction between the way we drink our cup of tea one way or another. Uh, I don't know uh, 
whether there's any orthodox method. But the point was that these who lacked, instead of bending down, were more cautious and watchful. And it may have been that reason. And so the Lord says, I'll do all I want to do against this vast host with 300 men. Well, that leads me to another point which I think may be worth spending a moment or two. Chapter 7 um, now, wait a minute. Chapter 7. Where do we get the number of the people? 22,000. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, now, that's eluded me for a moment. Verse three. Is it verse 3? Oh, thank you. Yes, that, that was the bit I was looking for. It says, And they are returned to the people... Twenty and two thousand, and there remain ten thousand. Well, now what's twenty and two thousand? Well, our usual way of reckoning it is twenty-two thousand, twenty-two thousand. But it isn't. Do remember that the Hebrew puts it the other way: twenty and two thousand is two thousand and twenty. You must remember that. Now look at the next number, chapter twelve, verse six. Chapter 12, verse 6. You remember, in the days of Jethar, it says in verse 4, Then Jethar gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead smote Ephraim, because they said, Ye Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. And the Gileadites took the passages of Jordan before the Ephraimites. And it was so that when those Ephraimites which were escaped said, let me go over, that the men of Gilead said unto them, art thou an Ephraimite? And if he said nay, then they said unto him, say now Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth. But he could not frame to pronounce it, you see. Of course that word has come into ordinary use, a Shibboleth. But a Shibboleth is merely an ear of wheat. Doesn't mean anything. But it was the question of whether you can say Shibboleth or Sibboleth. And to this very day, you know, there are a good many companies of God's people that say, say now Shibboleth. And if you can't, well, you're for it. But that's not the point I have in mind for the moment. And if they couldn't pronounce it aright, then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. Now, the Jordan is a very narrow river. And it says they killed, or they fell at that time, the Ephraimites, 40 and 2,000. You imagine 42,000 people all lining up, 10 abreast, to be massacred. They'd take some time, wouldn't they? 42,000 of them at the Jordan. But it doesn't mean that. It's 2,040. Now, there are many other instances I could give you. And you want to watch. You'll find there's a, another occasion later on in the book, in this Old Testament, where a wall fell upon, oh, I don't know how many thousand. And... There was, I don't know how many thousand were, died because they went into a field to look at the ark of God. Into a field. We must be watchful over these numbers because those who do not know can make ridicule of the book and you want to be on your safe, want to be on a safeguard over it. One of the words which has played up in this numbering is the word elef. Now the word elef means a thousand. But the word elef also means a captain. 
You remember the quotation, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, and then though thou be little among the captains of Judah. One, one version says one, one says the other. They're both right. Because a captain was one who led a thousand, like a centurion was one who led a hundred. And so on one particular place, it's not to make the word LS mean a thousand, but there were leaders of the people, just ten of them say. Instead of ten thousand, it was ten leaders. But I can't go into that anymore, otherwise our time will be up. I must come to the next one, which is a problem I want to be sure to include, and that is this problem about Jetha and the offering of his daughter. Chapter 11. We read in chapter 11, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of Banner, and he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. Well now we have, Jeth- we have Jephthah, and Jephthah, don't forget, is mentioned in the epistle to the Hebrews, along with Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and so on. Jephthah. And we are told that he made a vow. And that is the, the source of the trouble, which I've got down here, you see, the um, uh, the story. Now let's uh, see where this comes in. A little bit further down in the story, I've got, this, I've got the fact, you remember he said that he would offer whatever came out to be, um, in the pity I've, I've missed my way in this. Well, we'll have to just find it. You help me if you can. 30, what? Oh yes, thank you, that's right. Well now in verse 30, it says, And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, if thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And then you know what happened. Verse 34. And Jephthah came to Mizpah into his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And of course the usual interpretation is that he said that whatever met him he would offer as a burnt offering, and he did it. Well, there are one or two reasons why that cannot be accepted. I don't know whether you can see on the chart here in the middle. I've got here Jephthah, and the second line, you'll see a word, L apostrophe, O-L-A-H. Well, now I'll try to explain what that means. L, Lamed in the Hebrew, is translated by our English word for. And Ola is a bird offering. So, if you want to say for a burnt offering, you say la ola. And I'll give you one passage where that can be seen. That is Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7. 
Leviticus chapter 5, and, and of course continuously through the scriptures, wherever it says offer for a burnt offering, this is the way in which it is put. Uh, chapter 5, 7. And if he be not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring for his trespass, which he hath committed, two turtle doves and two young pigeons unto the Lord, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. That's not to be disputed, there it is. If you want to say a thing is going to be offered for, you put L in front of it. Now the first thing to notice is there's no L here. There's no word for here. The next thing is this. <coughs> that the word translated it when it says, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering, can also be translated him. It's one of those words that have to bear either meaning. So you see, we've got two things to remember. It doesn't say that it was going to be offered for a burnt offering, and it doesn't say I will offer it as a burnt offering. I will offer him. And you see what's coming out of it, don't you? This is what Jephthah actually said, We'll start again. Verse 31. Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. That's what he said. And that's what he did. His daughter met him. And she was immediately devoted to the Lord. Let's, let's go down the chapter a little bit. Verse 36. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeding out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. And he said unto her, and she said unto her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed and she knew no man. Well, that's an extraordinary thing to say if she was offered as a burnt offering. But if she now was made a perpetual virgin and was not allowed to marry again, she was devoted to the Lord. She became what you might call in the Old Testament a nun. And it says, And she knew no man, and it was the custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly, not merely to lament, but to rehearse, to go over the matter with her, the daughter of Jephthah, the Gideon, four days in a year. So what really, what really is the truth of the matter is this, that Jephthah did two things. He said the first, that meets me I will devote to the Lord and I will offer him a burnt offering. Not I, will, not I will offer whatever meets me because if an unclean animal had met him first, I mean it's possible that a dog might have met him but he couldn't have offered that for a burnt offering if he wanted to. And then there's another reason. There's another reason. I've put there um, Leviticus 17 verses 1 to 4. Supposing we look at that, 17, 1 to 4. 
No, 27, 1 to 4. What have I got there, 17? I think it might turn out to be 27. And we'll have to, be, have to correct this chart if needs be. Uh, wait a minute. That's the one. Let's read it. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When a man shall make a singular vow, the persons shall be for the Lord by thy estimation. And thy estimation be of the male for twenty years old, even unto sixty years old, even thy estimation shall be fifty shekels of silver after the shekel of a sanctuary. And if it be a female, then the estimation shall be thirty shekels. And if it be from five years old, even up to twenty years old, then thy estimation shall be the male twenty shekels and the female ten shekels. And if it be from a month old, even five years old, then thy estimation shall be the male five shekels of silver. For the female, thy estimation shall be three shekels of silver. And so it goes on to say that if a man has made a vow, which is a singular one, he can have it transmuted and turned into money. And you see, was there no Levite in the days, either because he wanted the money or because he was sorry, that didn't go to Jethro and say, but even though you have offered your daughter, you can redeem it by a fine, by money, by this offering of so much, according to the age, according to the, the uh, whether it's a male or female, it's so much. So that you see, we need not be burdened now you may remind me that Abraham was told by God to offer his son Isaac, but there he was told to offer him for a burnt offering, and the word is right. But when you get to the top of that mountain, you find God's provided a lamb or a ram caught in, his, in the thickets and says, stop, stop, I never intended you to do it, Abraham. Now I know you fear me. So they're not on equal force. Well, now that leaves us very little time to speak about Samson who comes into the story at the end. Uh, perhaps it might be wise if you'll just give me an opportunity to outline the twelve exploits of Judges, of these um, uh, Samson's exploits in the book of Judges, and then I think we'll have to bring it to a close. It divides itself into three parts. There are those exploits which are related to the wife, a woman of Timnath, there are those which are related to a harlot of Gazar, and those which are related to the ones we remember most, Delilah. Three different times this man failed when tempted. And of course you immediately say to yourself, oh yes, and three different times the greater Samson, the true Nazarite. You see, there's no connection really between the word Nazarene and Nazarite, except in sound, but it's there. The true Nazarite, the one who was truly devoted to the Lord, was tempted three times, but he prevailed. That this poor man, would, in spite of all his strength, he went under so completely. And you remember how he first of all rent the lion, and then there was the riddle about out of the strong came forth sweetness. Then there were thirty men slain. And jackals and firebrands are mentioned. And the Philistines are smitten hip and thigh. Always a dreadful business goes on by this Samson. 
But then to come to the end of the story, you remember how they had bound him with ropes and they bound him with withies and they couldn't hold him until he was persuaded to reveal the secret of his strength and then they got him. Now friends, there's a lesson for all of us. The secret of our strength is not in flesh and blood or muscles or even money in the bank. The secret of our strength is the spirit of the living God. The fact that we are redeemed and that we're set apart for God's purpose. And as long as that is maintained, then we're strong. But as soon as that is in any measure bartered for any reason whatever, we shall be a poor, blinded, captive, like Samson was. At the end, he was given permission, and instead of praying for his murderers, he brought down the whole house and destroyed them. But on the other hand, our Saviour, in his predicament, he prayed for those who were his murderers. But at the same time, remember, that he spoiled principality and power, make a show of them openly, in the triumph of his cross. Well now that leads us out to the book of Judges to a little spot where we can rest for a time and get over some of the turmoil and that is in the midst of this very book of Judges when every man did that which was right in the sight of his own eyes there was carried out that precious little book the book of Ruth and I felt that if I'm going to wade through Joshua and Judges and we're up to our neck as it were in turmoil and strife and shedding of blood, it would be very wrong to go on and not give the book of Ruth its place. So when we meet together next time, if I haven't exhausted all there is to be said in the book of Judges, be thankful, because we shall spend our time on something, I trust, that will come nearer to our hearts and give us a a vision of the Saviour in this capacity as the kinsman redeemer.